0: Extrinsic motivations are things like, re- well, I'll just draw a line down the middle, that would be helpful. and there are things like rewards yeah. and punishments over here, and over here, it's like enjoyment, pleasure, and love. So extrinsic motivation is what I do to get my children to help clean. Intrinsic motivation is what I do when I pick up the guitar. I don't practice guitar, I play guitar. You know the difference? And what do we mean when we say you play guitar as opposed to practice guitar? Because they're the same activity except for what's different. I find it fascinating that we call, we call it play. You know what play is, right? it's pretend work that you actually enjoy. (laughs) Because if I said, oh, I'm gonna go outside and play, and then you got in a huge bulldozer and you dug a foundation, and like, you know what I mean? I'm gonna go play with my blocks, and then you literally laid concrete blocks into the foundation. But that's what little kids do. They pretend they're doing that. So what we're talking about, I think, is extrinsic versus intrinsic motivations. Extrinsic, rewards, punishments, practice versus play, needs, ministry-wise, needs drive, extrinsically motivate people to do ministry, as opposed to maybe overflow? Is that a good word? Now, I'm going to set it up to make it sound like extrinsic is bad, intrinsic is good. But at the outset, I'm going to go ahead and say the conclusion is Jesus uses both. The Bible uses both, every teacher uses both, every parent uses both, and every disciple on ourselves intentionally uses both. But I find this distinction still helpful at processing, especially at establishing what's our goal. We, you want to avoid a bad outcome, that's an extrinsic motivation for something. I'm gonna not eat that extra piece of pizza on Friday because I don't want the bad outcome. I'm definitely going to eat that first piece, though. <laughs> it's going to be over in this side. Of... <laughs> focused on outcomes. Focused on the activity itself. Meaningful sacrifice versus a heart that actually says, it's no sacrifice. It's my joy. There are times when something you're doing that you know is the right thing is a meaningful sacrifice. It hurts. You don't necessarily enjoy it, but you're, you, you enjoy the reason for it. Then over here, you might even be doing the same exact thing, but you'd be a different person or a different season of your life where the doing of the thing is even a joy. I think extrinsic motivation tends to compete with a holistic life balance. And I think intrinsic motivated activities tend to contribute to a holistic life balance. You know what I mean by that? Things that we're doing because we should tend to wear us down and, and cost energy and enjoyment. We This is a Tim theory, I could be wrong. But things we do because we should, too much of the time, it's all sucking out of a limited reserve of emotional, I don't even know what the word is, nectar, nutrients. Whereas, this stuff is replenishing, and so it tends to raise the, the enjoyment of every other area of life. This tends to be draining, in other words. Extrinsic motivation activities. If, we do, if that's all we did all day long, at the end of the day, you would have a life that you're like, boy, this is really not, this is not working for me. I should rethink my uh, replenishing. I think a lot of our revival preaching sometimes comes from this side of the equation. We paint the picture of the life you wish you had. We paint the picture of the eternity you want or the eternity you don't want. And we get extremely intense and we attempt to show you the why to get you to move, to get you to do. And so it tends to end up being sort of adrenaline-fueled, which means it's not long-term sustainable. Whereas intrinsically motivated relationship with God is totally sustainable long-term because there's kind of a calm, steady steady thing that it, that it does. And I'm not suggesting that there are not times where intrinsically you experience adrenaline. It does seem to me the goal of this is to produce this. And that when this is missing, when intrinsic motivation is missing, we have to fall back on extrinsic motivators, I would put it this way, so that we don't betray Jesus and those we love. Here's another word. This is push. This is pull. On this one, we have to push ourselves to do it. And on this one, it feels like we would have to almost exert our will to not do it. We're pulled to. We just can't wait till we can do it. And this is actually part of what I would try to help people identify what they might be called to, how how Jesus has shaped them, what he's asked them to, made them, designed them to be about in the world. Outcome, and on this, it would be love for the process, God's presence, and the outcome. Is, Is it beginning to make sense? Because I'm following my intuition on this. There's something here that I'm trying to figure out, and it has to do with how do we make disciples? How do we make people who are in love with God? How do we create a whole congregation of people who, are, who stay in love with God long-term? How do we raise kids to be godly? How, like, this is what I'm processing. Because it seems like if, if the goal is people having intimate relationship with Jesus and new hearts, well, then a certain measure of this won't be able to produce it. But with none of this, is it just going to happen magically? No, it's not going to just happen magically. You can lead a horse to water, and you, but you can't make him drink. On the other hand, he's going to drink a lot more than if you lead him to the desert. Right? So just because you can't make him drink doesn't mean you shouldn't lead him to water. Mm, good. And just because you can't guarantee that people are going to fall in love does not mean... Jesus constantly appeals to rewards and punishments. It's a a repeated theme with Jesus, rewards and punishments. Those are extrinsic motivators. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to wave my hand. I'm going to wave my hand over you. You're going to fall in love, and then you will no longer need any self-discipline. He doesn't say that. There are plenty of times we have to force ourselves to do the right thing And then in the doing of the right thing, we find our heart finally coming along for the ride. Uh, (laughs) Shotgun weddings to Jesus. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, That's where the girl gets pregnant and then dad comes out with a shotgun and says, you're going to treat this girl right now that you've done the deed. All right. So you're like, "Okay." And you get married because you have to because the dad's going to kill you. Right. Shotgun weddings to Jesus is you're going to hell, friend. Your life's a shambles. You're on drugs. You've made a mess of it. You've ruined your th- whatever. You've ruined your marriage. You've, your, whatever it is. And then the person comes to Jesus with a shotgun, with a crisis on their hands. They're not in love with God. They don't want to love God. They just know that their life's a disaster and they need help. So they come out of, they need to. So similar to a shotgun wedding, except for instead of necessarily the threat of hell, it's the threat of my life is hell on earth. Help. Well, God doesn't turn those folk away. He doesn't say, well, you can't come in here for that motivation. The motivation should be to love me. No, he'll take you as you come. And then you'll give an inch and he'll take a mile. He wants your heart. But when when the motivation shifts from I'm here in a crisis because I have to, because, oh, my word, extrinsic motivation, you'll know because all of a sudden the heart that beats in David that says, I just want one thing. One thing I ask that I seek. I just want to dwell in your presence, beholding the beauty of the Lord. That's all I want. Can I just live with you, God? Can I just know you? I just love you, God. I don't even need you to do a bunch of stuff for me. I'm just blown away that I get to belong to you. Could you show me more of you? You're my favorite. That's a, that's a far cry from, from, hey, I done screwed this up. I don't know if you can help me, but please do. Because that was my prayer heading into this thing. God, I don't know if you'll have me, but help. I didn't realize I was signing up For this project, you know. That's, I think, most of us. You know, I don't think we knew what we were getting into. In my formative years, meaning my, like, teenage years, this was all I knew with regard to the God topic. Behave or else. And it didn't work. It backfired for me, and I wanted nothing to do with God then for a while. And then when I figured out grace when I discovered relationship with God and then came into the awareness that I'm not even under law. God's not even, I'm dead to law. I, like Romans 7, if a wife's husband dies, then she's allowed to remarry. It's not wrong. And then and Paul says, in the same way, you died to the law so you could marry Jesus and you're dead to the law. You're no longer married to the law. You're not under the law. law is not involved in your relationship with God. The law is for sinners who don't know anything. You have Jesus on the inside, and all you need is to be led by the Spirit, and you're free. When that landed on me, it was like, then I realized that what I had grown up with, with these extrinsic, everything was reward, threat, punishment, morality, don't do this, don't do that, and it wasn't my church. It was my lens. But when I realized that I was not under this, I was in this. I'm in Genesis 2. That was just like... So I still talk and like we were talking today about the gospel penny dropping. And I watch people when they get devoted to the Lord because it seems like at some point that gospel penny has to drop. And if it doesn't drop, I get concerned. When somebody is still in a kind of contractual relationship with, with a moral exchange thing, then... They'll read in the Bible, this is what I should be like. This is what a Christian is called to. Then they'll set to work trying to do it. And they'll look around at the others who don't seem to be measuring up to what they think they're trying. This is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, really. It's what it is. And they'll be driven for a while. And they might even be sincere. They might even be genuinely born again. But our spirit can be righteous, but our brain still be in the wrong mode. And I'm waiting for that gospel penny to drop, meaning... When they actually start, when they actually come out of the woods of all that into the open space of, oh, even if I screw up today, I'm saved. Wow. And I don't want to screw up. I'm not saying that because I want permission to screw up. Uh, My heart's desire is to please the Lord. But if I do, I'm in. I'm still in. God's not hard to please. I'm under grace. Jesus took all that so that I could get all the blessing he earned that I don't deserve, and it's like a... ah. That's when the gospel penny drops. When the gospel penny drops, that's not a slogan. That's a lived, experienced reality. The conscience becomes clean, right? Condemnation versus righteousness, the sort of gospel thing. You shift from, I have to measure up, or I can't feel okay at night. If I can think of any sin, I have to confess it, to... You know what, I don't have to even think about which sins I should have confessed. They're all forgiven. I'm in, I'm so in. And now it, becomes, now it becomes a romance. Now it becomes I'm learning the love of the Father. Now it becomes I'm learning the heart of Jesus. Now it becomes I'm enjoying how do I partner with Holy Spirit? And I'm not saying you're, you're saved at the moment that that happens. I think I was saved way before that happened for me. Way before. I was saved before I understood anything even about why the, why the cross happened. You know, because God's super gracious. But the preachers on TV would have told me that I wasn't. They would have said I was getting closer to the kingdom. But then this other moment was when it really happened. And I'm like, no, that's when the gospel penny dropped. But I'm saying I grew up with so much of this that I've reacted against it. It's preacher problems where you're in a room with young, young teenagers and you, and you want them to not waste their life and go to hell. And you can see the, the, the 20, 30, 40, 50 year trajectory of various life choices that are Totally going to screw up everything. And those are all extrinsic motivators. And so everything in me wants to like shake them and yell and paint the picture and be very clear. And I can, and maybe sometimes I should. But I remember what it felt like to be 15 and come to the front to deal with the emotion that the presentation stirred up and not get saved, to get a little religious for a minute, you know, a little adrenaline for a minute little group euphoric emotion for, for a month or two. Put on a Christian necklace. This is why I'm processing this. It's like I want full-hearted, intimate, on-fire disciples. The other thing is this. In terms of worship, we glorify God the most when we enjoy Him. If I'm sacrificing a lot for God and... It's a drudgery, and I feel sorry for myself because of all my sacrifices for God. That's not glorifying to God. I wouldn't even say that's worship. But there are times when I force myself to offer a costly sacrifice, even when I don't enjoy it, because it's my intention that he enjoy it. And that intention behind that is worship. But I glorify God the most when I am satisfied in him. Which is over in this category of intrinsic motivation. So I want to see my kids, our people, us, intrinsically love, delight in, treasure, enjoy, take satisfaction in, find genuine hope in, genuinely believe God, treasure him, delight in him. Be satisfied in God. But I can't make it happen. It's not my work. But I do have a part to play. Mm-hmm. You know what? How did that go? I even wrote it down yeah. it notes somewhere. It probably does. It's Jesus rebuking the Ephesian church for walking away from first love. And what he says is not, he doesn't, he doesn't say what you expect him to do, which is return to your first love. And then your deeds will follow. He says the opposite. He says, do the deeds you did at first. And he seems to mean that's how you get back to first love. When you do the things you did when you were in love, you will rekindle that love. Now, I think that's deep and super empowering. It's, him, it's the treasure principle again of Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Your heart's actually gonna, your will is gonna be able to lead your heart. And that's why I say it's not intrinsic versus extrinsic. I have verses here uh, to distinguish between the two, not to suggest that they are opposed to each other. But this is meant to serve this. We charismatics, I consider myself one, we consult our feelings and thoughts way too often. A liturgical church consults the lectionary and then says in their personal prayer time and in their corporate prayer time what the book tells them to say. And to us, that looks like dead, empty religion. But if you're a depressed, bi- you know, bipolar, suicidal, hopeless, uh, overly oh, checking your pulse and your feelings and your thoughts, looking to see if you love God today, wow. That is salvation. It is salvation to get up in the morning and pray the truth, whether you feel it or not, on a schedule, in the morning and in the evening. And I promise you the Holy Spirit will come because he just does. But sitting there evaluating my feelings to see if I feel like I believe today and then concluding that I don't and something's wrong with me, and then leaving church over it and leaving your friendships over it or leaving your marriage over it, which is what I see people do, right? Leave your marriage because you think that must be the problem. Today, the Lord told me, go read 2 Corinthians chapter three and four. And in 2 Corinthians three and four, Paul's unpacking uh, in his intense suffering because he started in chapter one of 2 Corinthians saying, guys, I don't want you to be unaware of just how much we suffered. We went through such hard things over in Asia that we, it felt like a death sentence and it was beyond us. So then he's digging into what was our hope? What's our hope? How, where do, we, how do we find God? He says, God who, shines, who makes light shine out of darkness has made his light shine in our hearts. And I hadn't seen that as clearly before. Paul's saying, if you really want to go to a dark place, search your heart. Just investigate your own heart. And it'll be like looking into the black abyss of space. But God, who raises the dead and makes a light shine out of darkness, having Jesus in our hearts is like light shining out of darkness. The darkness is our heart, Jesus is the light. And then he says, having Jesus in our hearts is like having a treasure in a a fragile, breaking, easily broken clay pot. And then he says, having Jesus in us is like having bodies that are wearing down and getting worse and worse and older and older. But our spirits, meanwhile, the whole time that that's happening are being renewed and being renewed and being renewed and looking more and more like Jesus every day as we go along. If you consult your feelings, it's, 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 it's a bad plan to live feelings first. Self-reflection first. Live gospel first. Don't fix... Because that's a part of what your eyes can see, right? So he says, we don't fix our eyes on what is seen. We fix our eyes on what is unseen because what is seen is temporary. It's fleeting. It's going away. But what is unseen is eternal. Now... Something that is seen, that is going away and not a helpful thing to fix your eyes on is what you think is true about your life. What you think is true about God's goodness in your life. What you think is true about your fruitfulness for the kingdom in your life. What you think is true. Paul says to Timothy that we're supposed to use the prophecies that God spoke to fight the good fight of faith. As opposed to what? Just believing what we think. The prophecies are what God is saying. We're to use them to fight the fight of faith. Why? Because if you just believe what you already think and feel, you, you won't be walking by faith. You'll be trusting in what, you th- what your eyes can see, which is that which is temporary, which is the world is falling apart and you and I are getting older and things are going wrong. It's still a world where sin and death are very much ruining everything, including what we think of as God's will for my life. So what's our hope? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus, he says. The finished work of Jesus, the hope of the gospel. That's an extrinsic for me. I'm forcing myself to read the unchanging word. Why? Because I want it to get me into the place where I actually believe and trust God internally. So this isn't bad and this good. They have a relationship to each other. Parents with children. You know I, don't know, I don't know how you could parent without rewards and punishments. I'm not saying they all have to be spankings and stuff. But rewards and punishments are powerful. Let's say a kid does something good and you reinforce that by telling them they did a good job. That's called a reward. A punishment might just be an honest evaluation of where they messed up. And I wonder sometimes, friends, if Jesus doesn't stop rescuing us from the bad consequences of our bad choices for the same exact reason. Not because he's mean, but because he's love. There are times when he doesn't just erase the guilt of our sin, but he'll even take away graciously the consequences, the earthly consequences. It doesn't happen every time, but it does happen sometimes. But sermons are not very loud compared to consequences. You know, sermons work best for people who don't need them. For everyone else, there's consequences. But do you know what I mean? Sermons work best for people who don't need them. People who don't need sermons have a hungry heart and a faithful heart, and they're seeking God already. They'll gain the most benefit out of the sermon because of their attitude. That's the irony. They don't need it, and they're going to gain the most benefit from it. The one who needs it the worst doesn't have ears to hear help you know, and I say that but then the Lord's like hey 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 sometimes I, I use a, a, an anointed message to break a hardened rock or a, a heart that's a you know when, when he says it's not my word to Jeremiah you know like a hammer that breaks rock I'm not actually talking about rocks Tim I'm talking about hard hearts that sometimes but my wife quotes this to me all the time the same sun that melts the ice do you know the quote it's from the Puritans. Yeah, I the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Right, right. So the same word from, it, Paul says it, I, I, I read in 2 Corinthians today, to one group of people, we are the aroma of death. We smell like a dead, rotting corpse. But to the other people, we smell like, Spring flowers. We smell like a breath of fresh spring flowers. To one, we smell like life. To one, we smell like death. Based on what? Us? No. Based on them. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So sometimes extrinsic uh, rewards and punishments just don't work at all because of the heart. And, And this is why one of the things that I fall back on is prayer. Mm -hmm. God can do the impossible. If we believe that, we would pray. Mm -hmm. We would pray. This kind comes out with prayer and fasting, says Jesus. I was talking with Carrie about that today. I said, so I don't think you pull demons out. I think you push demons out. I don't think you pull sins out of people. I think you push sins out. In other words, I don't think they get out from the outside. They get out from something on the inside, shoving them out. I think you want someone to get free of a demon, the best possible thing you can do is get them full of the Spirit. You want to get somebody to fall out of love with sin, the best possible thing to do is help get them in love with Jesus. They have choices to make, too. We have choices to make, too but I'm coming back to this thing of prayer and fasting. I become an answer to my own prayer on accident because if I'm praying and fasting for you, I'm putting aside this and I'm getting more full. And now I might be able. Like I just, I think of my cousin Jeremy constantly with his, there was a couple in his church whose kids were just really driving them out of their mind. And, they went and like, can you help our kids? They're screwed up. They need counseling. And so instead of that, Jeremy sent the couple to Colorado for a week of ministry, receiving ministry. And after a week, they had forgiven things. They had let go of things. They had just radically encountered the father. And their marriage was transformed. They came home and they were like, I don't know what happened to our children They've just gotten so much better. That's just an interesting idea, isn't it? It works for demons too, though. Yeah, because he doesn't say this kind only comes out with the person with the demon praising fast. No, it's when the disciples pray and fast. If you allow the Lord to shift your atmosphere, you will shift the atmosphere around you. Yeah, at the, at the heart of biblical faith, to me, is enjoying God. Not being afraid of God. Not, not, the fear of the Lord is amazing. And I want every one of us to walk in the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is not the same thing as being afraid of God. In fact, the fear of the Lord is not afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is reverence and respect for God in such a manner that we know God and walk with God. And then we we grow up into his love and then perfect love drives out all fear. That's the irony. The irony is if you start with the fear of the Lord, you'll end with perfect love driving out all fear. And if you have the fear of the Lord, you'll stop fearing what everyone else is afraid of. You know, because your trust will be in the Lord and you'll see him clearly. Just the other night I had a friend who's like, Tim, do you believe we're living in the end times? And I'm like, well, yeah. Aren't you scared? And I'm like, no. Aren't you scared of Jesus returning? No, I want that. Aren't you scared how it's going to feel if we all fly up in the air? No, my whole life I dreamt about being able to fly. It's going to be fun, you know? And I, I'm, hopefully I was encouraging to my friend. He's like, well, am I normal? I'm like, Oh, you mean, is it normal to have irrational fears of random things? Yeah. My wife's terrified of little spiders. They, they're not going to do nothing to her. I said, I'm irrationally afraid of heights. You know? Snakes. Snakes are what you're afraid of. You know how scary snakes are, Stan? Yeah. Snakes are afraid of snakes. I, what I got I what you got bear is, like, we need both. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I I do I do think that just like I grew up with that experiencing extrinsic motivation too much. I think there's probably a generation in church right now that is like, yeah, I can do what I want and I sleep with who I want and do what I want and believe what I want and give if I don't give if I feel like it and attend if I feel like it. Or I don't even know. Just like there's a life untethered from obedience to Jesus. But the song in their mouth is grace, and I'm like, "But your life's suffering from a lack of obedience to Jesus. Do you not like? There's more going on than just does God love you? Yeah, He does. Don't you want to experience abundant life in Jesus? That that's not that's connected to obedience to Jesus. You know. I heard a great sermon when I was a kid. The guy was talking about dating and try to remain sexually pure and maintain their boundaries, their physical boundaries with him and his girlfriend. And he had a friend named Bob who would call him on Monday after he'd spent the weekend uh, in, the, in the region where his girlfriend was. Right? So, so in the weekend, he's going to be with his girl, but he knows on Monday Bob's going to call him on the phone. <laughs> Did you keep your commitment to Jesus? Did you keep your physical boundaries? And he said, now, I shouldn't need Bob to call me. Because the fear of God should be my enough motivation. Just, just a love for God and a, and a deep desire not to displease the Lord. But let's get honest. Sometimes the fear of God ain't enough. And I need the fear of Bob. I need the fear Bob's going to call me on Monday and say, did you sin? And I'm going to have to admit it if I did. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. I screwed up, you know. I never forgot that. The fear of Bob versus, <laughs> versus the fear of God. So you've probably heard me say this like 30 times when I asked the Lord, which do you prefer? Do you prefer my discipline or do you prefer my passion? Remember this? He He said, I prefer your, your passion to your discipline every time, but it takes discipline to maintain your passion over time. And I said, oh, now I get it. He needs both so he can have this. So that, that was really helpful when Jesus... Because I was confused. I was like, so I'm supposed to be offering you a sacrifice, but when I'm in the right place, it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice. And when I feel like my heart's in the wrong place, like, I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to sing. I don't even want to obey. I don't even want to trust you. I don't want to live for you because my heart's so jacked up and ruined, just in a dumb place. And I think it's good for us to admit that we don't always feel first love. But that was helpful. So like I said at the beginning... When, when my heart's in a bad place, I fall back on extrinsic motivation so I don't betray Jesus. I've yelled it out loud when I've been self-pitying and telling the wrong story about my life. And my wife said, like, well, maybe we should just quit. And I go get all feisty and I say, we will not betray Jesus because this wasn't your idea, Sherry. He called you into his grace, but he also has a call on your life. That wasn't your idea either. What are we gonna do? Take control back from Jesus and betray Him when we get our feelings hurt, or it doesn't seem worth it anymore? Get a grip. Just talk sense to yourself. Call Stan on the phone. You know, call Rusty. He'll tell you. You're listening to the devil. You're listening to the evil one. He gonna keep talking if you keep listening. That's you know, thanks, Rusty. Yeah, you get a one minute sermon. All right, I'm done.